Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. My guest today is the American soprano Renee Fleming. Her career has spanned 30 years in top roles in the world's main opera houses. She's become known as the people's diva for her working-class American roots, work ethic and embrace of many different varieties of musical arts. Her signature roles have been dignified, tragic heroines, Violetta in Verdi's La Traviata and the Marshalin bidding a haunting farewell to a younger lover in Der Rosenkavalier by Richard Strauss. And she's the only opera singer to have sung the national anthem opening the Super Bowl. Her albums cover Broadway and Bjork as well as the Baroque. And besides four Grammys and a Polar Music Prize, she has an asteroid named in her honour. So this week, we're asking one of the great sopranos of our times, can opera seduce a new generation? Renee Fleming, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. So, Renee, fittingly for a performer whose career has stubbornly defied definition, and I think quite proudly so, you're now appearing in a production at The Shed. This is this new, big, reassuringly expensive arts venue in New York City. It's called Norma Jean Baker of Troy by Anne Carson. It's neither a play nor a musical, so you describe it. Well, it's really quite fascinating because it's an extended monologue uh, that Anne Carson wrote that kind of matches up Helen of Troy with Marilyn Monroe in a context of war. And Alex Poots, who is uh, the artistic director for The Shed, had the great idea. He loves to bring people together who don't, who haven't worked together, who probably are coming from disparate worlds. And in, in this case, Ben Wishaw and I have not met before. And I, though I'm a fan of Ann Carson, I hadn't worked with her. And Katie Mitchell, brilliant director. When I saw uh, the recent play that she directed in, in London and, and the curtain went up on a two-car garage, I said, yes. <laughs> I said, I told Katie, I said, I want to do an opera in a two-car garage. So uh, I don't know what I would call it. I would say I would say it's that world between opera and music theater, but highly, highly sophisticated because the writing is so extraordinary. And Paul Clark, the composer, is great, too. So this guy buys himself an old telephone booth, in sets it up by the side of the road on the edge of town. At the end People can go in and dial a number and talk to the dead. I've just seen Ben Whishaw, your co-star, wandering about in his, uh, well, in, in his hairband, uh, his dressing gown, and a, a frilly nightdress. Yes, yes. Yay. Ben, and, I mean, uh, you were sitting in a power suit at a desk. So tell us who's. <laughs> 
So Katie Mitchell has created a scenario that fits on top of Ann Carson's piece and complements it really beautifully and is also very moving. We're at 1963, New Year's Eve. Ben is a an office manager, and I am playing his secretary, which is the name of my character, secretary. And ultimately, uh, throughout this night, this late night of him dictating and improvising the story, based on his knowledge also of ancient Greek and his fascination with Marilyn Monroe, he turns into Marilyn Monroe. Um, not literally, but he um, dresses like her, he makes himself up like her, and it's ultimately quite quite moving. He identifies with her very strongly. And the secretary, remembering this is 1963, goes along with it, has enough um, sort of a simpatico relationship to him that she goes along with it. So it's genre-bending and gender-bending. Absolutely. Are you confused yet? Are you confused yet, question mark? I expect you've heard of the Trojan War, Uline, and how it was caused by Norma Jean Baker, Uline, harlot of Troy. These two women, Marilyn and Helen, lives full of conflict, passion, grief, but also some form of, of, of dignity across the, the years, the millennia in this case. It does put me in mind of other roles that that you've taken in opera, Marceline in the in the Raisin Cavalier being one of them. Do you feel drawn to a particular kind of character? No, I'm very open minded actually. I mean, this is certainly in every way something completely different from what I've done in the past. And especially the vocal writing, the way that the music unfolds. And I have to say the most fascinating thing to me is the entire soundtrack, everything about the sound that the audience will hear. Um, and it's very hard to believe this uh, because um, it's the air conditioning and the and the jazz band that plays in the middle and something that sounds like a piano. Uh, it's all drawn and made from uh, samples of my voice. So it's it, the technology in the piece uh, in terms of sound is quite extraordinary and unusual. As far as the the women that fascinate us, I mean, certainly Helen of Troy and Marilyn Monroe were symbols and have been throughout time symbols of beauty. And the havoc that is wreaked on them and, and in many cases on other people because of their great beauty. With Ann Carson, we see... We see them also as uh, complete victims of, of circumstance and of, and really of our own myth-making machine. It's quite dark. And how does it compare what it's able to do with the portrayal of women in opera? There's been there's been a bit of a surge of interest in trying to bring a kind of more feminist take to a, a lot of the classical repertoire. Yes. Well, bringing in more women directors, bringing in you know a, a host of uh, women conductors, we need this, women composers. So this has been a long time coming. I was on a composer track as a very young person, but there were no examples that I knew of of women composing, so it never crossed my mind that it was something I could do. We're more than half the population, so as we've said for a long time, it's we should have half the power. Do you feel this is a feminist work? Definitely. I think definitely, yes. Um, feminist is kind of a, a, a strange word. It has a lot of historic connotations, certainly here. But I do think it's absolutely about the, the toll that war takes on women. Uh, I think that's quite at the heart of it. 
and in Marilyn Monroe's case, obviously, that her beauty ultimately became uh, some sort of prison. She was defined by it. She had a hard time living outside of it. And, um, and all of those factors, I think, probably played into her taking her own life. Well, also be the Countess and Figaro and a number of operatic females who also seem to live between that, the attraction of their beauty, or the beauty of their voice. Well, certainly in the big Italian operas and a lot of historic operas, women were victims. They were very much the subjects, but without power. The rage, the vengeance, the um, desire, was the seduction was typically around a young woman victim. Or you were the witch or the sorceress or the... Uh, it was one light or the other, one lens or the other. So if you weren't a beautiful young um, heroine, then you were probably on the dark side of things. And in fact, one of the, one of the things that was hard for me is there just weren't very many dramatically interesting characters to play, you know, multidimensional uh, roles for me. That's why this is such a departure and, and interesting. We're looking forward to the release in April of Bel Canto, which I think is a, a hostage thriller, a hostage thriller set in opera. I mean, it's perfect, really, isn't it? It's a perfect 19 for me, anyway. Uh, starring Julianne Moore as an opera singer, apparently modelled on you. And you also <laughs> provide her voice for the film, as Julianne Moore can do a lot of things, but probably singing opera uh, might not be the one that she'd, <laughs> she she choose to chance her arm on. How do you feel I about I wouldn't put that? it past her. I think it would just be a matter of time. Bel Canto, I have quite a history with this piece because uh, when the book came out, and Ann Patchett wrote this book, who's become a dear friend, people assumed it was about me because there were elements of Roxanne, including the repertoire that she sang, that only applied to me in my career at the time. That would seem to nail it, right? Yeah, well, and except it was untrue because we'd never met. She'd never even read an article about me. She simply had this, you know, stack of recordings of many of which were mine. And by the way, she did an amazing job of creating a, a specific kind of diva, um, and a no-nonsense uh, kind of American plain speaking. I mean, I, I was amazed that she sort of channeled that. And there's only one American in the entire book, and it's this opera singer. And Julianne Moore did such a beautiful job, I think, of capturing the the essence of her, the essence of the situation. The film is beautiful. It's evocative. The entire soundtrack, um, you know, my part in it aside, is gorgeous. David Maslin has created something quite hypnotizing. I couldn't, I said, it's an earworm. I can't get it out of my head. It's interesting about opera and I suppose also to an extent ballet that they seem to be very much looked to for directors in film, in movies and in television to make drama about. And yet they're struggling with younger audiences. I mean, it's not unknown that the, the Met has had its own challenges there here in New York and the big houses in, in London and beyond thinking, what is the right kind of opera offer to get new audiences in there. Are we over-responding to the crisis in opera, or do you take it seriously? I think we're over-responding in that the big houses that were created in a time when there was so much less on offer, both citywide but also in terms of television and cable and the Internet. So I would say that the, the, these larger houses are, are struggling to fill 
these gaping seats and also because people want a sort of more intimate experience now and they want they're so used to looking at people up in close-ups that they're they want that Um, but the other thing I think that people really do enjoy is new work is relevant work so National Sawdust in Brooklyn or or the Prototype Festival and they're producing uh, small operas they're mostly new and they're they're interesting. I mean, so that's what I enjoy. However, the Met, for instance, is producing this last season a grand opera on a spectacular scale, hugely successful artistically, I would say. Great singing. There's a lot of great singing right now. And I know a lot of young people who go to everything. They really want to see it all. But sports arenas are reducing their seating. You know, all sort of performing. So the intimacy of the experience is, yes. but that's very difficult. The world if you've is got changing. huge houses to fill. Exactly. I mean, if you, if you can get everything on your phone now, which we can, then I think people are staying home more. I would love to kind of see people encouraged to come out just for the sense of community and make things more social, make things, uh, you know, people have said, actually, there was an Opera America poll, and they said they want shorter works. They want to be together with their friends and family. And they, you know, ideally in a a comfortable setting where you're sharing the experience and having a glass of wine. So I I do think things could evolve in that direction. But I'm not worried about the Met because the quality is so high. It's, it, it, it will serve the public that it has, I think, for some time now. I think you had doubts about broadcasting opera work in in cinemas, which became a trend both in the UK and in the US and probably beyond as well. Have you revisited any doubts you might have had about that? The only doubts I had expressed were local, were here, because this notion that these broadcasts will poach audience from the live performance experience, I would guess that there has to be some truth to that. Uh, In fact, I knew people who were kind of bordering on retirement who just said, you know, it's very expensive to drive into the city, to pay for parking, pay for dinner, pay for the tickets. I love the HD broadcasts because I can stay home and get the same experience uh, or a similar experience. And they're close-ups. It kind of makes sense. It's obvious. But the risk, I think, or the the potential benefit, which is that you're building long-term audience or maintaining some audience and, and generating enthusiasm for the art form, uh, I think it has to be there because everything else, all of sports now lives on the phone. People are watching sports all day. So uh, it hasn't hurt them in the end. Uh, whether the arts can transfer to a digital platform successfully remains to be seen. What's your ideal mix now of work? Would you still like to do the big classical repertoire on the big stage and mix it up with being in these black box spaces, you know, in different parts of uh, of cities? Or have you thought about what kind of proportion of your work you'd like to have in each kind of setting? Well, I'm kind of doing it now. So um, I'm pretty thrilled with what I'm doing. It's a much broader um, set of activities because I'm still, you know, for years now, I've been concertizing probably 70% of the time, and that hasn't changed at all. So very little has concertizing. changed. Concertizing. Yeah. It's a new word for me, that one. Yes. Well, I, that's how I spend most of my time and have since my children were small so that I could be home. That's singing with orchestras and singing recitals around the world. Next season, I'm touring with Yevgeny Kissin. So I'm very excited about that. Um, I have a new opera coming up at the Met, which hasn't been announced yet. But it's I, I really 
seriously said, I want to find repertoire that's a fit for me now and stop trying to fit into this, you know, lyric soprano, young woman type of role. Because the Marshallin, I mean, I could sing the Marshallin forever, but I just didn't really want to keep doing it all the time. Because I'd done it so much. I'd done it in every major house that I wanted to sing it in. And and I really just felt strongly that there were other singers who wanted an opportunity to sing the, the role. It's, you know, and it's, it's not like I would never do it if, if something came along that was really special. But, you know, I've sung 55 roles, and it's quite a bit. You know, I'll be in London in June with uh, Light in the Piazza. That's a new experience um, and a very powerful character because she's an incredibly complicated situation. And so I'm looking forward to that, um, to exercising, again, a new kind of stage performance. When we read about your career, it's again and again, this, this idea comes up, the people's diva, a bit of a contradiction there. I, I, we'd say nowadays it's quite gendered, isn't it? And it has certain, we're diva, it has certain kind of connotations. I suppose it's balanced out if well, you're the diva, people's diva. Yeah, diva is very mixed. I mean, first of all, I, don't, I think people have forgotten the mainstream, they have completely forgotten that it was ever ascribed to an opera singer. And I think the very first time it was used uh, was for Sarah Bernhardt, I think, for an actress. Um, but we we owned the term for quite some time. And it, it, someone said you and Beyonce had reclaimed it for the twenty first century. Oh, that's a lovely quote. I would say that it it you know because the the definition is goddess. I always hope that you know it's a very positive term for what happens on stage you know, with an artist. It's not so great if it happens off stage because then it sort of you know means bad behavior. Beyonce says it's about being savvy as well. A female version of a hustler with style and business acumen. Hmm. What do you reckon? Diva, yeah. <laughs> now, I have a very different image. For me, it's it's a glorious singing. It, and it's also, it's it sort of, one imagines that the diva is on the pedestal. I think you attempted to drop out of music college. It must have been grievous to your parents, to join a jazz band at one point in your life. And you've since performed jazz, pop, rock, your latest album was called Broadway. It just gives that sense yeah. of flair and also like not wanting to be constrained yes. by certain expectations. What do these forms give you that opera can't? I'm just a you know, musically curious person. And I, one of my passions in life is the voice and everything that it can do. I mean, I'm very interested in different styles of singing and different cultures, actually, and world music as well. You know, growing up, having eclectic taste in music, um, I, I didn't understand why there were such barriers put on us. Once, of course, you know, I tell young singers, you have to really master your the instrument and the style that you're pursuing, first and foremost. Choose one, master that, and then um, maybe have fun on the side, like I did. I sang with a jazz band for two and a half years in college. But then uh, eventually I just thought, why, you know, let me try this and let me try that. And somebody, and some of these ideas came from other people. I'm not great at saying no when I see a challenge. How much do you have to guard your voice over decades of the use at that level? I think you once said opera was like the Olympics. It's, it's it at, And this is something that audiences can easily forget when they say, no. oh, you know, she wasn't so good on Tuesday, she was on Thursday. Or the, yeah. That level of performance, even for someone who's impeccably trained and mindful, does that get harder as the years pass? Well, the reason I've become so so fascinated by neuroscience and music, this intersection of health and music, I'm doing a lot in that arena now, that started with me wrestling with this crazy 
instrument that's internal that we can't hear what we sound like, uh, that we have to learn all these multiple languages and styles, but that also the body, it betrays us every other day with by being different. And your emotional state has an effect. You know, if you have any tension, you could have tension in your ear and it would affect your voice. So, you know, it, it's just a... It's a it's a tyranny. I always refer to it as the tyranny of the voice because... Do you hear um, changes in your voice over years? My voice, probably I'm less resilient. So I don't, I can't, when I was young, I could sing a whole performance and then rehearse all day the next day. And now I really have to be careful. I have to really just take it easy for a day or two. And still, I can still sing, but not the stamina, the full out strength. I mean, it's just like... Any other any other thing as we age, we don't have the quite the same capacity that we have when we're young for athleticism. And there's no question that uh, singing classical music is an athletic vocal pursuit because we don't have microphones. And I, I think it's, I keep reminding the audience that that is a huge difference. That is what also makes it extraordinary, isn't it? We're arguing a lot about how to mic theatres at the moment. You have feelings about amplification. Some houses are mm-hmm. beginning to sort of flirt with it in certain works, just saying we can't do yes. technically do more innovative works unless we have mics. What do you think? You know, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, Julianne Moore, for instance, when she was researching and, uh, and working on uh, Roxanne Koss and Belcanto, she and her husband came and heard a rehearsal of a live opera gala. And opera galas are fun because you have all these different singers. And they were stunned. They said, we can't believe how different everyone sounds. We've only heard opera and television, which equalizes and compresses every voice to sound basically the same in terms of volume. And they said, this is so much richer and so much more interesting. They said, we understand now why people are passionate about this, because the very fact that the human voice can do these things, to me, I've always thought is the strangest thing. That's the strangest cult. thing if you do it well. Well, the cultivation of virtuosity over centuries that moves people, I mean, it's extraordinary. Music in the Mind, this project that you've been working on with the Kennedy Center and National Institutes of Health, what do you want to achieve with it? Oh, I have so, I love this, um, uh, this project at the Kennedy Center. And my passion in this is trying to, first of all, I get to learn a lot about it because everywhere I go, I've given about 25 presentations now with neuroscientists and researchers. And the audience loves it because they learn about how music affects the brain, how it's useful for childhood development, for treating so many conditions and, and illnesses. Uh, and science is just starting. They're just starting to understand it. And, you know, the only thing I can understand about it that frames it, why music, why not other activities? Why is the NIH only looking at music right now? It's because of music power in the brain. So I have found this to be an extraordinary uh, new way of framing music for the audience. The question that I think you were very unhappy wants to be asked was, are you going to retire I think we've got the impression that you're not. <laughs> well, I mean, why why do people even ask that question? I don't understand it. You know, I mean, uh, there's so much science now that says stay active, stay involved, stay interested in the things that you're doing, and I that's never changed for me. Renee Fleming, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. 
And of course, we'd love to hear what you think. What could opera do to reach out to new audiences? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or tweet us at Economist Radio. And please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. We hope we hit the high notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in New York, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.